Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello, and thank you for having us in your podcast queue today. It's great to be a part of your day. Remember, you can find past episodes and a lot of other good stuff at our website, which is thenexttrack.com. And also be sure to follow us on Twitter at NextTrackCast. We often tweet interesting articles and stuff that is uh, adjunct to many of the episodes that we've recorded. That's at NextTrackCast. Appreciate it. We're not on Facebook, okay, just so you know. This is episode number 131 of The Next Track, and our guest today is Jeff Slate. He's a musician, singer-songwriter, recording artist, and music journalist and writer, and he has written the liner notes to Bob Dylan's just-released bootleg series number 14, More Blood, More Tracks, which is a pretty cool thing to get asked to do. And so, obviously, we're going to get into some Dylanology today. Jeff, it's great to have you with us. Thanks for joining us, and it's great to meet you. Great, great to be here, and it's a thrill to be on the show. As regular listeners know, I am a longtime Bob Dylan fan, and no one is surprised that I picked up the limited deluxe edition of this set, which gave me the delight to read your liner notes. My first question is, where does one apply to write liner notes for a Dylan release? You don't. Um, yeah. No, I, look, I, I think, um, I, I, I've joked about this elsewhere, but... I, I've written about Dylan a lot, especially over the last two or three years. I came to the attention of his office and, um, you know, we just started talking not about doing anything, not about a project, not about, you know, just kind of, you know, anybody who's a Dylan fan and, and the people who work for Dylan are, are absolutely fans, um, you know, you have a lot in common. You, there's a common language and a common ground that you have that's unlike, you know, uh, anything. And it, and it's different. You know, I, I did liner notes for Sgt. Pepper last year. It's even different than Beatles fans. You know, there's so many Beatles fans and it, they paint in such broad strokes. No, you know, nothing wrong with that. Obviously, they're the Beatles. Um, but, you know, I, you know, the Dylan crowd is is very it's not I wouldn't say insular so much as um you know, there's this sort of brotherhood, sisterhood thing going on there. So I had, uh, you know, come to their attention, got to know some of the folks in his office. And um, I, I, as I said, I kind of joked that I've been auditioning for this. In other words, I've written a lot about Dylan in the last few years. Um, and last year I wrote a pretty major piece for Esquire about the Gospel yes. Years box set. Yes, we'll have a link in the show notes to that right. and some of and, your other articles. And I've done, you know, I did one about his 75th birthday and, you know, many, many pieces. And they really liked him. They shared him on uh, Dylan's official site and, uh, you know, tweeted him and Facebook, you know, whatever. And I kept getting invited back to the office, mainly just, um, you know, to have coffee and chat. And in, in doing that... The, they, I would get played little bits of projects that were in the works. This is, let's say, over the last five years or so. And I think it was two or three years ago, there, there, was, there was a minute where they were thinking of doing a 20th anniversary uh, bootleg series of Time Out of Mind. And I heard a couple of outtakes. And I really fell in love with, you know, what I heard and um, said, man, you know, just kind of jokingly, but you know, as you do, um, man, I, I remember that moment when that album came, 
came out and it was such a big moment in his career kind of shift uh, for the 20th century, 21st century. And I could, I have something to say about that if you need liner notes. Pretty ballsy, but, you know. Well, they were inviting not? you for dates, and so you were making the next move. That kind of makes sense. A little a little bit. It is. I was trying yeah. to go to third base. Anyway, so <laughs> so um, that ended up not happening. But it, it was it, – it's not that I'm sure they hadn't thought of it, but, you know. So then, so then subsequently, um, there – you know, as, as you would imagine – Dylan's camp is very close with the Beatles camp a, a year or so ago, two years ago, they were looking for an American to work on the pepper project and Dylan's office recommended me. So again, it, you know, kind of in retrospect, it was almost like a, an, another audition, you know? So they set you up on a blind date with the Beatles people. <laughs> the Beatles. Now, now, you know, the Beatles organization knew who I was. Again, I'd written a lot about yeah. them. I, you know, I've, I've played at Beatles Fest and I have a long history with, with the Beatles. I've interviewed Ringo several times and so forth. Um, and it, you know, it went great and everybody was happy. And then, uh, you know, maybe six months ago or so, um, a little longer, actually, there was talk like maybe this was going to be the year that they were going to do Blood on the Tracks. And we, we'd and all been waiting for it. It was just... In, in in the scheme of things, the way that they released the bootleg series, yeah. th there would have to be a blood on the tracks. Right. And so, um, I, you know, and there was some some discussion like, will it encompass 74, 75, 76? You know, will it be blood on the tracks and desire? Will it be, you know, there was... Like, right, because last year's was, gospel years was three records, right, not just right. one. And so, and, you know, there's the Scorsese documentary in the works, and, you know, there's a lot going on. So I was just happy to be at the table. You know, I, it never occurred to me. And then, yeah. you know, it's it's a funny but absolutely true story. I was literally on a, I live here in New York City, on a public bus coming home from parent-teacher conferences. And my phone rang and it was Dylan's office. And, and um, you know, it was like 5.20. And they were like, can you get over here by 5.30? Because I live pretty close to the to the office, and I, and I said, "Geez, I I don't think even if I ran, I couldn't get there." What's going on? They're like, "Well, we're 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 going to do blood on the tracks, and the deadlines are actually tighter than we expected." Because you know now everything's um, produced um, in Mexico, so there's a long lead time for any any product that has to be pressed. Okay, especially like books and CDs and. Um, so, okay, we'll get over here first thing tomorrow morning. And and then, uh, you know, then I thought, like last year and previous years, there would be multiple voices. And, you know, they broke it to me, no, you're the only one. Um, and it was going to be sort of three to 5,000 words. And a couple of days into listening and writing and kind of gathering my thoughts, I said, look, it's, you know, I've got 11,000 words and I haven't even done you know, I'm not anywhere near finished. And they were great. We'll print it all. We, you know, they're very artist friendly. They're very, you know, writer friendly. And yeah. um, there was very little editing. They let me say whatever I wanted to say. Um, and it was it was sort of a fascinating process. But there's no, you know, I, I it was funny. I got a, a note from a journalist who's in uh, Idaho. This is when it was first announced, and it was that like, 
how do I get on this? You know, how do, how do I get to, do, you know, yeah. it's, it, you know, being in a city, you know, there's, it's like the guy who does Bob's artwork lives near Bob. I live near the, his office. It's, you know, proximity has a lot to do with it. It's not that there's, there aren't people more qualified or who would have had something sure. else to say or different to say or better to say. I just got, I, you know, I, they wanted it face to face to get to know you. I, they wanted to, they wanted to make sure that what you did m matched what they wanted in some way. Yeah. Yes. That, that you were on the same wavelength as them. Well, yeah, but you know, by the same token, there, there was very little editorial process involved. They, they were very, um, no, but they'd read your writings yeah. and, and they knew what you were, they knew, they knew what, what they you would say more or less. Yeah. yeah. What, what was it like when you first got, the, I guess CDRs or or something, and you sat down and started listening to this stuff. Well, I am not a Dylanologist who collects all the bootlegs, so I had heard some of these tracks that had been released on the other bootleg series um, releases. But when I put on the first record here, this was revelatory. I mean, hearing Dylan just do these acoustic versions of these songs alone is just—it's just mind blowing. I had heard, like I said, I had heard a few things at his office. Um, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? They were just getting into the process of finding what they had and putting things in chronological order, getting the session notes, and um, and they had his notebooks. And so when they gave me the project, everything, like I said, there was a little bit of a rush to get moving on it. They gave me everything totally unmixed. It was just the absolute raw session tapes with all the talking and all the... You have a slightly... People have a slightly edited version because, you know, you can't have minutes and minutes of silence and, you know... This, or banter. Uh, There's you, not a lot of banter. Yeah, you're not, you're not missing anything sort of relevant, but it is pretty cool to be, have that fly-on-the-wall thing. They gave me a PDF of Bob's Notebook and some session notes and we had a couple of conversations about it but it was you know i i took it home i put it on my hard drive i've got the apple tv i dialed it up and just you know okay this is day one track one here we go and just started kind of absorbing it and you know like i think most people will realize the narrative we'd always had about it which was that you know he kicked off the sessions with a band and it didn't go well and he fired them was not at all, you know, what had happened that, um, and we had discovered And people this. wrote books about this saying, right, right. Yeah. People who were there, which is a fascinating, yeah. I interviewed, um, Glenn Berger, who's the engineer on the sessions and his memory was, and, and when I interviewed him for the box, he was shocked when, you know, I, here's the session notes and here's the, you know, documentation and the, um, it, it was it was sort of fascinating to remind these people, look, it's 40-whatever years later. I mean, 44 years later, memories fade. And, and also, you know, his, his memory jived with other people who were there who had a little bit of sour grapes for not being credited correctly, not being on the finished record, not being... Um, you know, these are session guys who felt this was their big, op whether they admit this or not, this was their big opportunity, and they kind of got erased from history in many respects. Um, this is the New York guys, especially. The Minnesota guys, we'll get to that. That's a whole other story. Um, 
And so over over time, I think a lot of a lot of people who were involved, the narrative became Bob was difficult. Mm. And I, you know, my contention is he was just focused on making music. He was not focused on the other people who were in the room. They were kind of irrelevant to him, mainly because he didn't really want to play with a band. Yeah. He, he was prepared. Uh, you know, I remember the moment when we were in the office listening to the first couple of tracks and we realized that when he got to the solo section of a couple of these songs, he played the guitar part exactly the same. He played the harmonica part the exactly yep. exactly the same. The you know the the vocalizations changed a little bit because he was trying to find what voice he wanted to use, but he was super prepared in a way that most people don't give him credit for. And I think the interesting thing was that he was, and I say this in the liner notes, he was sort of went in there with the idea of returning to Columbia with John Hammond there, yep. making sort of freewheeling for a new generation, yeah. for the singer-songwriter generation. And that was not as, you know, historically what we thought had happened. No. There's a lot yeah. of books about the sessions yeah. and none of them say yeah. that. And now, you know, people are going to have to sort of figure out how they want to, you know, reassess the historical record. Well, one of the most surprising tracks on that first record for me is Lily Rosemary and the Jack of Hearts. And that to me has always been the odd man out on this record, you know, with the, with yeah. the bouncy rhythm and the, 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 the sort of circus sound and all that. And, and a lot of people yeah. I know who are Dylan fans think it's the weakest track on, on the record. Listening to this, the way he recorded that alone, I mean, this goes up there with Desolation Row and Visions of Johanna and Highlands as one of the great long Dylan tracks. Yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, it's different than the other songs. So it, it doesn't... Well, it tells a story in a different way. It it's, it's a linear narrative, yeah. which is also different to Desolation Row and, and Vision of sure. Johanna. It doesn't slot in naturally to the rest, thematically, to the rest of the tracks. I mean, right. it does, you know, in, in, in a broader sense, but I think even on the single disc version of this that... Um, you know, that's like $10 or whatever, 10 pounds over there, that, you know, um, when you get to that, there's a shift in tone and a shift in, you know, everything about it is different from everything else. But like you said, taken on its own, it's a great song. And I think what's, what's fascinating too, again, going back to the, the session tapes, you know, every take is remarkable. They're all a little different. There aren't so many of that one, but right from the get-go, he nails it, you know, and he's really invested in delivering the story in a really unique and kind of engaging way. So I think the problem for people who are maybe more casual fans is, you know, maybe skip that one when you're listening to the record, but go back to it on its own when yeah. you have 10 minutes and appreciate it for what it is, because it is, like you said, it's one of the great long storytelling songs by Bob Dylan. Yeah. But it does seem to fit more in, in this acoustic version um, yeah. with the tone of the record. Yeah. Now, of course, for people who don't realize, Dylan made two records here. He made a first record in New York. A lot of it was acoustic or acoustic guitar with bass, harmonica, some mild organ, slide guitar, etc. And what is it? He went back to Minnesota and his brother said it was boring. So he hired a bunch of local musicians to re-record five tracks. 
and the released version has those five tracks. Unfortunately, in this set, we only have those fixed, those final mixed tracks. We don't have any outtakes from the sessions. Right. Well, um, but, but they're remixed. So I think, right. I think there's a and there and the speed is corrected the too because corrected. they were what two three percent too fast right. because it made them bouncy. Was that it <laughs> was a Phil Ramone yeah. production? Yeah. yeah, I mean you know when when you heard things you know you finished your record and it had a little it was maybe didn't have enough bounce to it. You wanted to get it on AM radio. You gave it a little you know you just turned up the speed a little bit. Just to correct one thing, you know, in talking to everybody. There were people I talked to involved in the project back in the 70s that I didn't quote for the liner notes because it wasn't appropriate. But everybody agreed. You know, everybody says his brother David convinced him. There's nothing Bob Dylan does that Bob Dylan didn't want to do in the first place. <laughs> You're never going to convince Bob. Yeah. To, in fact, if you tell him, I think this should, he would absolutely probably do the opposite thing. Um, that being said, you know, he had lived with these mixes from September to December. He was in Minnesota. It was about to come out. You know, the covers were pressed. The acetates had been approved. And it was very much the 11th hour. But I think, you know, there's more going on here. And I, I think we have to remember he had gone in there and cut a very, you know, moody singer-songwriter record had accomplished that, but I think he was back on Columbia and, you know, he wanted to make a splash. I mean, he is Bob Dylan. He is the big, whoever was a big deal at the time, Joni Mitchell and Neil Young and Jackson Brown and all these people, he was still Bob Dylan and saw himself as Bob Dylan. And, and maybe, this is my take on it, maybe that record, that acoustic record, didn't serve his purposes of you know, following up on the tour of the band in a big way, returning to Columbia. So the way to do that is to make some FM-ready songs. And so the, yeah. the Minnesota sessions, which, you know, people think, well, he went in there to cut, recut the record or cut five songs or whatever. He really only went in to recut Idiot Wind. Um, and that went yeah, really and you, well. Yeah, and you say that, that it went so well that he just wanted to do some more and see how it right. turned out. Maybe it was that he just, it, there was just this magical moment, and he said, well, let's try these other songs, and he just liked them so much better, because it had been months since he had done the first Yeah, first. That, that was very much the case from, from the people I spoke with who were involved, and I think, um, look, if, if you listen to Idiot Wind, um, I think it's, it's obviously very different. So if what he was hearing in his head was a shift in tone and delivery and, um, you know, something that was a little more, you know, polished or had, you know, to use the word bounce again, a little more bounce. The Minnesota version of Idiot Wind is a complete departure from the New York version, which is... It is. It's more angry. It's yeah. more visceral. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. It's also shorter. The, yeah. the first version is over nine minutes long, um, <laughs> which is, yeah. you know, that and that makes the first... That makes the test pressing 55 minutes. So what I did is I made a playlist of all the versions in, in, in the liner notes you mentioned, which ones were on the test pressing and which ones were on the release version. So I put together a playlist of all the original test pressing tracks. Oh, interesting. And that's 55 minutes. And that's four minutes longer than the final version of the album. So that could have had something to do with it as well, because 
hold on, I'm just flipping over to iTunes. Idiot Wind is near the end of the first side, and as we get to the end of the side, the fidelity is less good and all that. So maybe there was something about that too. I don't know. Uh, you know, that's the beauty of Bob Dylan. We can sort of guess at what he, um, what he was trying to accomplish or what was in his head or whatever. And I say this a lot. You know, I, I, I'm a fan of a lot of these guys and if there's a new john lennon biography i'm gonna gobble it up or if there's a new mccartney or you know whoever it is i i read almost all of them and with bob dylan i read almost none of them because i i feel very much that and especially my experience in working with his office and kind of learning um i'm going out to tulsa this week to see the archive and the more you get to know him the more you realize everybody has it wrong you know, we want to read so much, as he says, you know, we want to read so much into what he does and says and writes that, you know, we, we tend to um, turn it into something that it's not. And I think I like to take my Bob Dylan as he wants me to have it. In other words, he presents it a certain way. I'm going to accept that as Bob Dylan in that moment. Certainly this is, you know, a 40 something year old record. So he's a different guy now. But in that moment, this was the record he wanted to release. Now, we can, you know, people say all that, oh, the New York, New York acetate was better and so on. They fell in love with it. Or it's got that sort of smile, you know, Beach Boy smile thing to it. It's the unreleased gem. Um, I, I'm not so sure of that. I mean, the, the record that came out reestablished him as the preeminent singer-songwriter at a time when, you know, Planet Waves and before the flood and all these other things they were number one albums new morning was a hit all of those albums were hit albums. but they weren't critical successes they, they well but they were to a certain degree but they weren't like this i mean this was yeah. this was a complete shift well, blonde on blonde this yeah. reminded people of what he was capable of yeah and you know if you need proof these songs are still played on the radio and yeah and a lot and and the songs on planet waves and self-portrait aren't and not to overstate the obvious but this was a very popular record i remember when this album came out people who were not folk Joni mitchell neil young fans were buying this you know my bruce springsteen fan friends were buying this well he even still plays some of them when i saw him what was it a year and a half ago i think he did tangled up in blue simple twist of fate and maybe idiot wind so he still got several of these songs in rotation yeah, I, he hasn't done Idiot Win in quite a long time, but you're you're probably right about the other two. He's done Tangled Up in Blue, because I wrote about Tangled Up in Blue for The New Yorker a couple of weeks ago. There'll be a link in the show notes to that as well. Thanks. 1,600 and some times, 1,500 yeah. and some times, since the, just during the never-ending tour, since 88. So he pretty much, I mean, he's not doing it now, he's doing Simple Twist of Fate these days. But I mean, these are songs that, are durable you know he can reinvent them he's still rewriting i mean one of the great things was earlier this year i was at the office and one of the guys in the office read me new lyrics i i think there's one version that's in his mondo scripto show in london right now but there are at least three or four new versions of tangled up in blue that he's written in the last year and they're completely different they're like you know, kind of apocalyptic and they're very, um, you know, they're kind of 
they feel very sort of Trump Brexit era. They have kind of a, you know, he's rewritten Gotta Serve Somebody too, and that has a very, um, you know, 21st century tone to it. So look, this is a guy who's pretty restless and, and is is willing to rip up what he's what he's done. That's very popular and and is still played on radio. And I think we should give him credit for that. But by the same token, I think it's because those songs are, you know, they're they're incredibly um, they're they're just incredible songs. It makes you wonder if he's going to re-record some of them. Uh, I don't know. I mean, the the last three records of the Sinatra era stuff. We haven't seen anything in a while since Tempest, so maybe he's planning on redoing some of those songs. You know, when he performs live, as anyone who's seen him knows, he performs the songs so differently from the way they're recorded. And from one tour to another, and sometimes from one night to another, there's a different tone, a different mm -hmm. tempo, and all that. Mm -hmm. Maybe he's planning on releasing something, but who knows? We can't second-guess Dylan. Who knows? I mean, that that would be wonderful. So you know, getting back to the New York sessions, and sure. as we were just saying, he does things differently, and, and you hear him do a song, and then he does it again in a different key, at a different tempo, a different arrangement. Mm -hmm. And this is the most fascinating thing, I think, for most Dylan fans, is to hear all these possibilities of what could have been on the record in very different ways. Um, which are the songs that stand out the most for you in this set? And not counting the Minnesota recordings, because they're on their own. Right. I think in New York, if you see her say hello, and you're a big girl now, um, there's something really intense and intimate about them that, it's not that I never noticed it before, but I sort of have a new appreciation for them. Um, you know, they start off that first disc, and you're immediately transported to... And, and part of this is, too, the way they're mixed. They're, it's a drier mix. It's much more like you're in the room. Yeah. Um, there's something about his delivery that is, um, you know, I use the word, I think, piercing in the liner notes. And I really feel that. You really feel the intensity of whatever he's trying to convey. I think that's always the case with him but maybe a little bit more so with those two. So and you know, it's interesting because I felt that too. And, and those are the, I would say the B list songs on sure. the record. We think of idiot wins, simple twist of fate as, as the, 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 A-listers, the, the best songs. And I was very surprised to hear how much more important those songs sounded. Right. Well, I, you know, you asked, you know, what, what stood out to me. And I, I was trying to think of, you know, you accept that those songs entangled up in blue are great. I mean, you know, you, you, even people who aren't Dylan fans know Tangled Up in Blue because it's on the radio and yeah. you know, Idiot Win because it's so famous and so, you know, epic. Um, but but those two in particular are, you know, like you said, a little bit the B-sides or, you know, the B-tracks. Yeah. Um, and they're not. I mean, they're, you know, yeah. if any, any songwriter worth his salt came up with one of those songs, they would hang their hat and you know, be done with their career. They could go on for the rest of their lives playing that song in concert. Um, so, uh, yeah, it, it was nice to to appreciate um, songs that were a little bit overlooked to a certain degree. Um, you know, when you have ten songs on a record, some rise to the top. Just it's just the natural way it is, and then it sometimes it takes 
a very long time for you to realize. I know this is a songwriter. You know, you you put out a record and people tell you what the singles are. Yeah. You know, they they tell you what they're going to promote and they tell you what the best. You know, this is what you should play live. And you know, everybody has an opinion. It doesn't come until sometimes years later that you realize a track that you'd kind of overlooked had a quality about it that was a little more timeless than the rest and and um or or was better than you realized certainly at the time you just sort of overlooked it my, my classic example of that with dylan is blind willie mctell which he recorded i don't remember when but infidels he, he decided he didn't want to release it and it came out on one of these bootleg series albums right. and as you say any songwriter would just you know give give a part of their body to write a song that good and and by all accounts it's funny i i've talked to both dylan's manager and larry uh ratso sloman who's friends with bob who i quote in the in the new yorker article because it's a funny story you know ratso had been at the sessions and bob invited him over to the house and said you know i want to play you the album and he went over to hear it and he got to the end of the album and he said bob where's you know blind willie mctell and he said, it didn't work, Rat. So I've, I've made 33 albums. I'll make another one. Don't worry about it. Like he sees it completely differently. Yeah. But the way the way I understand it, he didn't feel he'd ever captured that song all that well. Now, and, and they had to convince him, twist his arm a little bit to put it on the bootleg series. And I think that's remarkable because that take on the bootleg series is as, from my point of view, as good as anything he's ever done in this in 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 his career in the recording studio and yet it didn't work for him for that record for that moment that performance that group of guys whatever it was so you know we all have to be you know again i go back to the you've got to accept the bob dylan he wants to present to us yep that wasn't infidels for him yeah um but we got it anyway so you know well it's a good thing and and it's true that these bootleg series uh, this this one is an exception because it's all outtakes of the same tracks we know, right. uh, except Up To Me, which was never released before, I think. It was on Biograph, um, but, I think. Okay. But a lot of the other bootleg series have tracks that we've never heard before. True. And in particular, that one, the, the first couple of bootleg series that had all, all the tracks from, what, the 70s and the 80s and things. And, and it mm -hmm. really mm -hmm. shows you a different musician. And as you say, it's not the right time for him, but... It, I think it's great that these things come out. Unfortunately, the context of everything lumped together means you don't appreciate it the same way as if it was in the context of the album when it was recorded. But there are some some wonderful songs on these bootleg series. Well, and I think, you know, I, I it's funny. I, I had this conversation after I finished with Blonde the Tracks. I was so sort of consumed with Dylan. I went through a period of listening to him um you know, other stuff. I was burned out on blood on the tracks, but I, I, you know, I was so kind of fascinated by him and how he worked in the studio. I went on to other stuff and I was texting with one of the guys who works in his office because I was listening to Empire Burlesque. And I said, there's some really good songs here. It just needs a remix yeah, because it has that kind of terrible 80s, you know, that sound, you know, but there are songs there. And I think that's very much the case with you know, there's there are overlooked albums, even some that were hits that, you know, um, that have gems and and outtakes that are gems. And some of those have been on the bootleg series and some are circulating with collectors and so forth. Um, 
there's a lot of Dylan out there that we haven't even, you know, we don't even know exists. You know, I mean, that, that's what's sort of am- most amazing to me is the, the volume. You know, I, I, they, they told me, I'm go- like I said, I'm going out to Tulsa to kind of go through the archives and, and I'm working on a project for them. And, and um, they have, I think, I could be wrong about this, but I think they said they have thousands of lyrics with no music that he just never got to and doesn't have any interest in getting to. He doesn't want to go backwards. He wrote those. They didn't work at the time. He reworked them into something else, whatever it was. Um, you know, I think that's, that's, that's pretty interesting that he's that prolific, that he can toss aside Blind Willie McTell. I, I think we're going to see a lot of stuff coming out of that archive project over the years. Yeah. Uh, I mean, his, yeah, his team is very good at exploiting his back catalog and you know, producing content for Dylan fans, and I'm sure we're going to see a lot. Jeff, this has been wonderful. We don't want to take up your entire day. You have six other interviews to do today. Um, thanks so much for sharing all this with us. This is really fascinating. And thanks for all this great writing. This is great. Thank you. Thank you. It, was, it was a pleasure. I'm happy to come on anytime. As we do at the end of every show, we like to wrap things up with our next track picks. Kirk, don't make me guess. It would be hard for me to pick a next track for this week that wasn't the more blood more track set by bob dylan i bought the six disc version just to give you an idea of what's on it the first disc is all these acoustic recordings that dylan made at the beginning of the new york sessions as jeff explained the last disc contains among other things the five recordings made in minnesota remastered speed corrected in between what you get is well pretty much the same as any other set like this you get all the various takes and retakes and you get some false starts and well you'll listen to the false starts once and then you uncheck them in your itunes playlist but as you listen to the various takes of these different songs it really gives you a different picture of what dylan was doing as you hear and as i mentioned in the interview that there are songs where you hear him doing something in a different key a different tempo a different arrangement a totally different style it's as if he's doing sketches to try and find what works best. And, and he can hear what works best, not so much playing the music, but hearing the recording afterwards and hearing how it comes out. Clearly, a, a sort of casual Dylan fan doesn't need this six-disc set, which is 100 bucks or 100 pounds. It's not cheap. But if you really do like this album and you're more interested in discovering its genesis, then I strongly recommend you get it. Doug? What about you? And you don't well, have to Well, I did pick Dylan. a new release. It is the second solo album from Billy F. Gibbons called The Big Bad Blues. And if you don't know who Billy Gibbons is, and I like the way he added F to this uh, to his name on this album, uh, Billy Gibbons is the guitar player and founder of ZZ Top. And this is his second solo album. Uh, he put out an album three years ago called Perfecta Mundo that had a sort of a Tex-Mex sound. This one's called The Big Bad Blues. And while there's nothing on this album you haven't heard before, it's just the way he plays the guitar and the way the album was recorded. The album is only 40 minutes long. It has 11 songs on it. The longest song is four and a half minutes long. Every song is very efficient. Uh, And I just love the way he records the music. It's very crunchy, very uh, distorted, but clean. It has, you know how that, that harmonica sound you get when you blow into a microphone and you get that nice distortion? That's what everything sounds like. And it reminded me a lot of a band called uh, Hound Dog Taylor and the House Rockers. Two guitar players and a drummer and just 
ripping energy on blues tunes. Well, this album is really, really good. And as I mentioned, if you have Perfecto Mundo, his first solo album, these two albums go really well together. There's nothing on this album you haven't heard before. Like I said, it's just, it's way, it's the way he, he renders the songs. They're just real sweet. Great slide work on this album, too. So if you are into ZZ Top or if you're into blues and modern blues in particular, because I think Billy Gibbons really has taken this this old style studio sound and modernized it. This is a great record. Billy F. Gibbons, The Big Bad Blues, is my next track. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.